Uh, as you read in, as we'll read in just a moment here, this picture of destruction, it's greater than what we're used to. Um, this past week on our radio program, we had a little uh, retrospective of the campfire that was in Paradise, California a year ago. And if you're familiar, that was just a, a horrific scene of devastation in, in just a matter of a short amount of time. These winds kicked up, this fire blew through the northern California town of Paradise. I want to say 20, 25,000 people lived in the area. And within two or three days, 90% of the city burned up. I was looking at the numbers again just to make sure it wasn't exaggerating. And the reports are between 14,000 and 15,000 residencies are burned up. Uh, it killed 85 people. It is the most destructive fire in California history. Uh, 153,000 acres burned. And as I said, 90% of that city is gone. We interviewed a few people who, by God's grace, were able to get out with their lives. And we talked to them on the program and they all shared of how challenging it was to flee and then to lose and to see the destruction, but how the Lord was so gracious and kept them, preserved them. And, and then one of the old gentlemen, I'm going to say he was about 90, 91 years old. Uh, he was a retired pastor there. He said, you know, we can't always have the things that we hold, but we know the one who holds us. And it was so encouraging for me to be reminded that even at 90, 91 years old, you could have everything earthly taken away from you. But if you have Jesus Christ, you have everything. You have eternity. You have the greatest treasure. So I, I, I bring that up to mention that we know devastation in this world. We see it happen. Hurricane Katrina. You go back in history, the Great Fire of Chicago. You go back even further in, in early uh, Roman history, the Mount Vesuvius, a volcano blows up and just rapid destruction happens. We're not far removed from knowing what destruction looks like. Uh, and yet, as we read here in Zephaniah, in fact, just take your eyes there and look at Zephaniah verse 2. God is calling out to his people through his prophet Zephaniah and says, I will utterly sweep away Everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. One commentator said this is almost a reverse creation. Whereas God said in Genesis 1 and 2, he, he's creating and moving forward in his creation. Here is a backwards decreation. I will wipe out everything on the face of the earth. My judgment is coming. It will be complete. It will be perfect. Even as my creation was, so will my judgment be. And it lends us to ask, this is so horrific. We could say 90% of paradise burned, but all of us here in Riverside, we didn't even smell the smoke. In Sacramento, they didn't smell the smoke, and they're only 90 miles or so from there. We don't understand this level of destruction. We know when fires hit our mountains, we can see that, but then people in Arizona don't experience that. There's an almost universal, global description of not some people and some beasts, some mountains, some streams. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth. It's horrifying if you read it. It's, it, is, it should send us to the point of fear. Now let me set the context here. Who's Zephaniah talking to? What, 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 what is going on here? Well, if you recall... In fact, if you just look back in verse 1, Zephaniah, he identifies himself uh, and that he is speaking in the days of Josiah, King Josiah. Now, there may even be a few boys here today named Josiah. We love Josiah. This is a man who came after Manasseh, who was the worst idolater you could imagine. He instituted all sorts of wicked idolatry and and. Then Josiah comes at age eight 
And then by the age 16, he finds the scrolls of the law and he's stricken with just fear before the Lord and yet a desire to bring about the right worship of Yahweh to the, the, to the city there, or sorry, to the country of Judah. Now, mind you, the northern kingdom's gone. The Assyrians came and they're gone. But Judah, there was still God's remnant there. And there's still this, uh, 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 there were still from time to time the right worship of Yahweh. And yet under Josiah, he, he brings reform. He brings about a certain amount of revival. And yet in this time, God sent Zephaniah. And we also know about the same time, Jeremiah. And they begin to call out the people. They begin to say, listen, you may be on the surface following Josiah, but we know your hearts. God knows your hearts. And you need to repent because you are still idolatrous at your heart. And so Zephaniah, he is calling the nation to repentance. And he is warning them, judgment will come if you do not leave your false worship, your your fake idols. And this judgment is going to be devastating. We just read verses 2 and 3 there. Look at verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal or Baal and the name of the idolatrous priest along with the priest. Those who bow down under roofs to the host of heavens. Those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear to Milcom, or Milcom. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. Zephaniah, the Lord speaking through Zephaniah, makes it very clear. You're not fooling me. I know your hearts and you may be, oh, King Josiah, he's, he, he's bringing reform and we need to follow what he has to say, but I still got my little precious Milcom here. Or I still have, I can go up on my balcony and I can worship the false gods that bring me such satisfaction. And Zephaniah is saying, no, don't do this. Judgment is coming and the Lord hates idolatry. Skip to verse 14, would you? For the sake of time, we have to skip here. In verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I know I read fast there. Let that sink in. That's another horrific picture of wrath. Distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness. One of the gentlemen I spoke to uh, this past weekend was a pastor there, a young pastor, probably close to my age. And he was talking about how he had to escape out of paradise. And there were times he was driving in his car and didn't, couldn't see before him because it was so dark. And yet the only light were flames on either side of the car. In in a sense, this is the picture, but even greater of how horrible the wrath will be. And, And mind you, the Lord says there in verse 14, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. There's no one that will stand before God and go, who are you? I'm a mighty man. I'm a mighty woman. No, on that day, no one, no one will be able to stand before the Lord. Chapter one is full of God's wrath and his rightful wrath. It is just that God would bring judgment against people who had rebelled against him. And it is a great warning that the day of the Lord is coming. This is something that the prophets began to use. You can hear it in Isaiah, you can hear it in Jeremiah. The day of the Lord. 
And we know that in and of ourselves, if we were standing and the day that the Lord came and we were standing in our own flesh, that is a fearful day. Or how can we stand before? As Isaiah paints the picture there in Isaiah 6, a holy, holy, holy God, thrice holy. What did Isaiah do? He's called of God. What did Isaiah do? He falls to his knees and goes, woe is me. I am unpure. But we're going to see in a moment here. We're going to get to grace. Don't worry, we're going to get to grace. That God in his graciousness purifies Isaiah. And we're going to see a call here in just a moment. That there's going to be a call. In fact, if you just look over in chapter 2 at the very beginning. So it's like... Boom, boom, boom. Judgment is coming. But chapter 2, verse 1 and 3. Gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation. He's calling them out. You guys are living idolatrous lives and you're doing it shamelessly. You don't even care. You don't even have like, oh gosh, I I know God's the creator of all things and I shouldn't be doing this, but I really like Baal. You don't even have any shame about it. You're open about it. You don't care about God. Verse 2, before the decree takes effect, before judgment comes, before the day passes away like chase, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Verse 3, oh, how many times do we hear this call in the Old Testament? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do this just who do his just commands, seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on that day of the anger of the Lord. A precious call of repentance. The Lord warns, it's coming. It is coming. But I am telling you, repent today. Today is a day of salvation. Come to me, repent, be humble before me. Or surely you will die in that day. Now, as we move through chapter two, and I encourage you when you get a chance, read through here. You're going to see that God not only calls out Judah, his chosen people as a people group. He calls out all the neighboring Gentiles as well. And even goes further, he starts calling out Ethiopia and other outlying countries. For the the time that it was written, he's basically calling out my little group here, who I called out of Egypt and I called my own and I promised Abraham a physical people, though we know there's a spiritual people involved, and this is what we talk about the remnant here. But, but, you Gentiles, don't think you're past this too. You've rebelled against your creator as well. You have not bowed your knee before the holy God. Both Jew and Gentile deserve this judgment. And so one might think, my goodness, this is heavy. How do we deal with this unbelievable description of judgment? Well, as I said, if you just flip over to chapter 3 real quick. This is where it, it, it shifts. God calls out Judah. Then he calls out the Gentiles. Then he goes back to Jerusalem specifically. In verse 3, at the very beginning, Woe to her who was rebellious and defiled the oppressing, or the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And he goes on and describes how all the officials and the priests and the leaders are far from him in their heart. And yet, yet, in verse 9, there is a shift. And we're going to read this in just a moment. But God says, verse 9, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. And verse 10, From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, 
shall bring my offering. There's a, a shift here. God begins to say, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something very unique. Something you can't even imagine right now. I am going to do it in such a way that it's not only going to purify and save my people, it's going to purify and save a people from the dispersed lands around the world. And then skip to verse 17. We're going to read some of those verses in just a moment. Verse 17, we get to where the Lord says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. How in the world does the Lord go from saying he's going to wipe out everything on the face of the planet? And by the end of this chapter, he is talking in such a loving and a caring way that he will quiet people with his love and that he will exult over them with loud singing. This morning, my brothers and sisters, I want to see. That's the question I want to ask. How can the Lord bring judgment? And speak of judgment in such a horrific way, and yet speak of his grace in such an amazing way. His saving ability to rescue people from their sins. So really, in any sort of gospel presentation, you've got the bad news, and it's pretty bad. And then we move towards the good news. There's the bad news, there's a call for repentance, and then... There is something very unique. If you look at verse 17, it speaks of God in a way that is quite different than what they're used to. The Lord your God is in your midst. And that will be the key to answering this question. As I said, God is calling out not just Israel. He's calling out um, all everyone, all humanity who does not draw near to him as their God. When we think about our own sinful state, does it bring you to tears still? I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes it doesn't. I, I, I've gotten so used to saying, yeah, I'm a sinner saved by grace, that I forget about how bad my sin is. I'm going to be honest. I was talking to my wife about this. Sometimes I'll hear people say, yeah, I'm just like Paul. I'm the chief of all sinners. And I've got to be honest, I don't resonate with that sometimes. Because I'm like, yeah, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. <laughs> uh, Paul, I don't know what he was going through. He just was bragging. Yeah, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm the worst of everybody. You know, you get in that with guys and people you're hanging out with. Yeah, I, you know, I see a switch. Fan. I love switch. Oh, no, I really love switch. Oh, yeah, well, I went to the concert. Well, I had VIP tickets. We always like to one-up each other. Well, Paul's like, I'm the chief of sinners. Oh, okay, well, you got me there, Paul. Here's the reality. I think this is an honest statement. We can't imagine how bad our sin is. We are far worse than we can possibly imagine. Even as saved Christians, the reality of what still remains in our flesh is horrific. And as I was rereading this this week and preparing this week, I just was brought to tears. Lord, this is me. This is me. I am saved by grace. I love Jesus, my Savior. And too often, I'm distracted. Maybe not with Baal, maybe not Milcom, but I'm distracted with Facebook, and I'm distracted with movies, and I'm distracted with people liking me, and whatever it is that feeds my self and my idolatrous ways. <laughs> Sin comes down to what we just looked there. Not honoring God. Not glorifying God. Not drawing near to Him as our Lord. That is the heart of what rebellion happened between Adam and Eve. In fact, if you look um, there at, at chapter 3 at the very beginning, uh, look, look at verse 3 here where he calls out the officials. Her officials within her 
are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. God is faithful, and yet they continue in their unjust ways. And so God is right to judge this. He is their creator. He created them to know him and to enjoy him and to glorify him and all that they do, and they're not doing it. But God sets forth a plan. He begins to explain and reveal more about what he's going to do. Look at verse 9, as we just said. Let's read it again, and we'll continue on through verse 13. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Remember, he just called them out. You're shameless. But on that day that I purify you, you will not be put to shame because of your rebellion against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave you, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. God's going to change his people, and he calls not, he's pointing out Israel or Judah specifically here, but then he's talking about people outside as well. Distant worshipers being called to him there in verse 10. Verse 11, that the shame will be removed to them because of their idolatry. Verse 12, God will create a humble and a lowly people who find refuge in his name. Verse 13, these people will do no injustice, they will speak no lies. Now that is good news, isn't it? But in the day that this was said, God's remnant, perhaps even King Josiah, must have thought, what does this mean? How how can this be? You've just painted a horrific picture of judgment, and yet now you're saying somehow judgment's going to pass over us. Somehow you're going to purify us. Somehow we're not going to be the same stupid sheep people that keep going back and forth. Idolatry, judgment, back to God. Idolatry, judgment, back to God. How are you going to do this? They must have wondered. How are we going to graze and lie down and not be afraid of you? Because we should be afraid of you. We're idolatrous. How will we always speak truth and be just? Because you know us, God. We are not that people. How will we be humble before you? Because too often we're haughty and we don't care. We consider ourselves mighty before you. And yet who are we? What are you talking about, Lord? I'm sure some of them must have asked this question. How? How are you going to do this? Verse 14 begins to even open this up for us more. God says, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. God commands them to worship. God calls them into praising him. And rejoicing over him. And I'm sure in some ways they must have said, but Lord, what do we have to sing about? What do we have to rejoice about? You've just said you're going to wipe off everything in the face of the earth. You said that judgment and wrath is coming. What do we have to be happy about? Verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. 
if Zephaniah was standing and proclaiming these words, I'm sure some standing around mouths must have just dropped. What? Lord, how, how are you going to remove our sin? How are you going to take away our judgment? Is this even legal, God? I mean, you deserve to judge the unjust. And now you're just, you're not going to dole out the penalty? And here we see this further as you read from the Proto-Evangelion in, in, in Genesis 3, that there would be someone who would come to crush the serpent's head. And as you keep moving through the Old Testament, God begins to reveal more and more his wonderful plan of redemption. And here we have just an amazing description of how God is going to come and himself deal with our unrighteousness. We know Peter explained that the ancient people longed to know how God was going to do it. How will you justify an unjust people? And if you look at verse 17, the key is right there. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. The mighty one will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. He explains he is the one who will do it. The mighty warrior, the NIV says. The NASB says a victorious warrior. The ESV, as I'm reading out of, said a mighty one who saves. Palmer Robertson writes in his commentary that this is a warrior who overpowers his enemies. Brothers and sisters, we have right here a very clear prophecy of a Messiah who would come. And a very clear insight that this Messiah is somehow... Wait, what did Isaiah say? Emmanuel, God with us? God with us. And then Matthew doesn't miss a beat as he begins to write his gospel that Jesus came. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. The promise is that God is our mighty warrior. He is the one who will rush in and do battle with the sin that we can't deal with, with our unjustness that we have no ability to do. He will come and remove the judgment. He will be in their midst. He will save them from their enemies. We know this very clearly now because of the wonderful gift of the New Testament. He is speaking of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, Emmanuel. And in some ways, verse 17, if if that's not hard to go, wait a second, God's going to deal with this on our behalf and be in our midst? If that's not absurd for the human mind to grasp, the idea that God would come in and rejoice over us with gladness, that he would quiet us with his love, that he would exult over us with loud singing. God commands his people to rejoice over him and to rejoice over who he is. And yet God is saying he's going to sing over us. Is that not Idolaters? How how does this work? And let me just take a caveat here that uh, this rejoicing is not just a ho-hum, okay, I did it. It's not a run-of-the-mill sort of top 40 love song. He's talking in an average voice and saying, yeah, okay, you guys are cool. Um, No, The same word Isaiah used in Isaiah 62, 5, when he said, As the bridegroom rejoices over his bride, or the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Just so we don't push that aside. That is loud. Men, do you remember that moment when you saw your wife or your, your fiancé at that moment, and she took that corner if you had a center aisle, and there she was, beautiful and spectacular. She took everything from us and go, woo <laughs> she She's sticking it out. 
I, I'm, I can't believe this is happening. I'm going to marry my bride. There's exultation. There is excitement. There's great joy. And we're talking about the warrior God, the victorious king, the mighty hero who rushed into the thick of the battle on our behalf and engaged our greatest enemy, sin. As Isaiah describes in Isaiah 25, it entangled us. We had no way of getting out. Even if we thought we were working our way out of it, we kept getting more and more sticky with it. That's the self-righteous, right? Oh, good, I'm doing really good. Oh, I'm horrible. No matter how hard I try, I can't escape this. The warrior God, our mighty king, the victorious king, came and did battle with what we could not deal with on ourselves. So when this God wins, when he redeems his people, when that battle is done, does he go, all right, I'm done. See you guys. No. I mean, we know on a human level when a great victory is won, whether it was USC over Cal, sorry, Alex, uh, whether it's, you know, the Rams over the Chargers, whether, you know, whatever we're excited about, we're, yes, we won. This is wonderful. And we're talking on a very human level here. And God, is, in some way, is giving us some hyperbole. But don't ever diminish. It, it is greater than what we can imagine. God's joy for his rescued people. It's not less than. And so God revels in his victory. He rejoices over his prize. Yes, in this context, God is specifically speaking to the remnant of Israel. But dear Christian and brother, this is God's inspired word for us today as well. And when we see what Christ did on behalf of all humanity who trust in him by faith alone, in Christ alone, we have much to rejoice over. Yes, it was written to an ancient people. These are particular words dealing with a very real rebelliousness against God and a very real judgment that was going to come. But I've heard it said before, prophecy is very pregnant. It has multiple layers in many ways. And so, yes, these words reflect the coming judgment that Judah will experience because even though the call of repentance was there, as a whole, they did not repent. And they went off into Babylon. But isn't it encouraging to know that Josiah worshiping the Lord was not in vain? Because we know in exile, there were men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who surely were affected by the words of the the law as Josiah brought them back. And surely were brought to their knees by the prophecies of Zephaniah and Jeremiah. And were truly God's remnant. And so in exile, the worship of Yahweh was not lost. Even 70 years in, there were still those who were worshiping the true God of Israel. But as I just said, these words are dripping, dripping with rich foreshadowing of the new covenant, of the Messiah that would come. We know Israel needed God himself to come and redeem them from their own sins. Yes, they went back into the land after 70 years. Nehemiah and Ezra are beautiful pictures of a, of a broken people, a humble people who are calling out to the Lord. His word is being read. Revival is breaking out. It is beautiful. And on a whole, the worship of Yahweh continues until Jesus comes. There's no blatant, it seems, idolatry creeping back in. But yet... What happens? There's a pharisaical system that gets set up and there's this drawing near to the Lord in word, but their hearts are far from me. They are still sinful people who need a savior. Just like you and I'm assuming most of us here are of the Gentile persuasion. We were so out there, so distant, so we all needed a savior. And so God is saying. No one could keep my commandments perfectly. All have fallen. All have gone astray. That's what Paul's dealing with there in Romans. And Jesus came and he kept those commandments perfectly. He lived that perfect life 
And then in his death and his resurrection opens that door universally. The call is to all who would come unto him. Not just there in Israel anymore, not just in Judah there, but to Cush and Ethiopia and Assyria and to the other ends of the world, California. And yet, I want to remind you, even though we're ending with the good part here, these words are reflecting a coming and final judgment that will come. Because though the siege of Jerusalem was horrific, go and read Jeremiah, go and read Lamentation, go and read some of the history books. It is a horror. It is a horrific siege. Cannibalism and, and all sorts of horrors happening. It's not exactly as it's described in chapter 1 there. I will wipe away all. I will deal a complete judgment of the world for its sin. There is coming that great day of the Lord. The great day of judgment is coming. And yet in a many ways today, we're at the beginning of chapter 2. It's coming. It is coming. And if you have not run to Jesus as a refuge from that day of judgment, do it today. Fall down on your knees and humble yourself before Almighty God. Repent of your sins before that horrific final day. So how can God remove judgment from a people who deserve judgment? This is often what the New Testament is dealing with. If you look, you don't have to turn there, but look at First Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. God in our midst, dealing with our sin that we could not deal with. Paul deals with this all the time in his epistles, but Romans 5, 8 stands out. God showed his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Our mighty hero, Emmanuel, Jesus, came and dealt with our sin and our judgment. Oh, Palmer Robertson says that this Zephaniah 3.17 is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. That there's much to rejoice here over. You could, I, I kind of rewrote it this way. For God so loved his people that he sent his only son to be in our midst. And we know that his son was divine and yet he took on the form of man and he lived a perfect life. He showed his power and never sinning. He went to the cross. He took our shame, our judgment. He showed his rescuing power by subduing our greatest enemy, sin and death. And he rose again. And now he is in our midst. And it's such a precious Spiritual way, the Spirit of Christ through the Holy Spirit is in our midst. He is our God. Those of us who have walked with Him for any amount of time know how precious those words are. The God who should have damned us, adopted us, and called us His children, and gives us a love beyond anything we can imagine. He gives us his spirit so that we might have the power to live holy lives and the conviction to know when we need to repent, when we fail, and to know that forgiveness is there. He gives all of the glory for what he is doing amongst his people. I think of Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Sometimes my kids ask, why? Why does God do this? And we're not really given a great amount of insight outside of it pleases him to save sinners and it brings glory to his name. And you know what? The more that we walk with him, we just think, I know I don't deserve it, but I'm so, so thankful for it. Especially after you read what that judgment is like and the horror the horror is eternal separation from the most precious creator 
the most precious entity in all of, of the world and all the universe. That's the whore. Our flesh will so often talk about, oh, I can't imagine what burning fire is like. I can't imagine what damnation is like. The horror for me, the more I know Jesus says, I can't imagine not knowing his grace. I can't imagine not being able to call out upon him and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I have fell in this area. Would you forgive me? And to know his sweetness and his refreshing and his rebuilding, the correction, the love, the grace. I can't imagine living without that. When we called out to Jesus for salvation through faith alone, we were taking refuge in his name. We trusted in his ability to absorb our judgment upon that cross. We believed he was that mighty hero, that mighty king, that great rescuer who was able to deal with our sin, our judgment. And so when we go back and God is saying, I'm going to do something. I'm going to purify you. Start singing. Start rejoicing. Be glad. And you know what? I'm so excited about what I'm doing. I am so exuberant about what I've done. I rejoice. And he's not idolatrously worshiping us. He's rejoicing in the prize that he has won. We are caught up in the great eternal Trinitarian worship that has existed for all time. The Father and the Son and the Spirit worship and and joy and gratitude and, and just perfect relationship. And we get caught up in it. I'll close with this picture that Jesus himself gave us of what this exuberance looks like. It's a story that we're all familiar with. I bet you most of our young people here know this story. Of a son who told his father, I don't need you anymore, old man. Give me my inheritance. Let me go my way. I can deal with life myself. And there was a season it was well, right? He was living high in the hog. The old expression. And then he ended up having to eat with the hogs. And he's brought to such a point of humbleness, of just brokenness, that he thinks, you know what? (laughs) My dad's servants are treated way better than what I'm dealing with right now. And I know my dad is a good man, and I could probably go back to him and ask him just to forgive me and let me be a servant. And the story told to us is embarrassing to the people of the day that it was told to. Because we get the image that the father probably maybe every afternoon went out. But one day the father's there. And he sees somebody returning down the street. And he knows, I know that walk. That is my son. And in the ancient shame-based culture, the father should have just said, all right, I'll let him come. He can plead, whatever. I'll, I'll deal with him. But the father runs to his son. The father embraces his son. The father kisses his son. And you have to imagine the emotion of this moment is not just a quick little, it is just sobbing and kissing and rejoicing. And when he brings his son back in, he says, kill the fatted calf and turn on the music. And they're, the Bible, I went back and reread. It says they're dancing and they're rejoicing. It's so loud that the older son is out in the field working. He's like, what the heck is going on over there? It is so exuberant. It is so loud. As Jesus himself said, the angels in heaven rejoice over the repentant sinner. How much more the father. And so for those of us in Christ. This is the love. This is the love that the father has for us through Jesus Christ. When we repented, when we turned to him, he flooded us with his grace. He overwhelmed us with his love, with his joy And we rejoiced together, didn't we? We didn't hear him necessarily in words, but I guarantee you when we see him, it will be marvelous. 
It is all of grace. It is astonishing. It is shocking in some ways. Sing aloud. Shout with joy. Rejoice and exult with all of your hearts for the love that God has for you. And it is this love, it is this grace that motivates us, that gives us the power to live lives that bring glory to his name. This is how Paul endured horrible trials in the book of Acts. This is how Peter endured for the name of Christ in the book of Acts. This is how Christians for century upon century avoided the temptations of the day to give in to whatever idolatry was happening or whatever false uh, teachings were existing. This is the same grace that has kept a church preserved that the gates of hell will never prevail against. His love liberates us to bring glory to his name, regardless of the circumstance, to serve him for the joy of knowing him alone. No longer motivated by guilt. We are motivated by grace. That is amazing grace. That is amazing love. But finally, I know there's a chance that there's some in this room who don't know that love. Who don't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And very humbly I say to you go back and read Zephaniah judgment is coming the Bible often says that there are those who will self delude themselves and say well God hasn't judged me yet (laughs) my life isn't that bad God understands me whatever it is that we lie to ourselves about God will judge each and every one of us. The beauty is for those of us from Jesus Christ, that judgment passes over us onto Christ. That judgment doesn't fall on us. Christ dealt with it for us. But if you're standing before the Father on that final day, judgment will fall on you. And the Bible over and over, we just saw a small picture here, talks about how horrific this judgment will be. It is so uncomfortable, most of us don't even like talking about it. And even in my early days of wanting to share the gospel, it was so easy to want to tell people about the love of God, which is beautiful. But when we stand in our sins, we have to be honest. Judgment is coming. It will be quick. It will be complete. It will be just. Faster than those fires that tore over paradise on those dreadful days a year ago. It will be like that. And the Bible says you will have no place to run. You will have no place to go. Because right now, Jesus said, is the day of salvation. Right now is the time to repent. Right now is the time to run to the great refuge, the mighty tower. Our mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark we can run to. So come to Jesus today. Little kids, six, seven, eight years old, do not wait. There are temptations and trials that will await you that will eat at your soul and will distract you and will delude you. I guarantee you there's a few here you could talk to who are in their 30s and 40s have come to know Christ and said, oh, if only I had heed the call of repentance when I was younger. I have to deal with these scars today. Today is the day of repentance. If you're 30, 40, 50 years old, don't think I've wasted my life. Today is the day that God can purify you, that he can reach down and and change your heart and give you a new heart to live for Christ. And I guarantee you, old or young, middle-aged, wherever you're at, that if you come to Jesus Christ today, you, for the first time, will experience the most satisfying relationship you'll ever have in your life. Now, ask any Christian here. It's not consistent. That's not his fault. That's our fault. But it is satisfying even when we repent and turn back to him for forgiveness. For he is a God of grace. He is a God of love. He is a God who cares for his people. He's the good shepherd. 
Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility in Christ alone, in faith alone. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. I'm fearful, Father, that I went too quickly. Father, I'm fearful that I I didn't delve too deeply into how holy you are and how right you are to judge sin, to judge rebellion, to judge us. I'm fearful, Lord, that I didn't present what Isaiah and Paul said, that we are all like sheep and we've all gone astray. It doesn't matter, Jew or Gentile. We've all gone our own way. We've all chosen to do what's right in our own eyes. We've all fallen short of your glory. So, Father, take your word that was read today and Holy Spirit, do a good work in our hearts right now. Lord, to those who are unrepentant, to those who were really good Pharisees and put on a great front, but their hearts are are exposed before you, Lord. May they fall on their knees and repent and experience what grace is in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those who just haven't cared, whether it's in blatant rebellion, pursuing whatever idolatry that they thought was good and would bring them pleasure, or to those who just just were ambivalent, just didn't know, they were agnostic to what life is about. Lord, they've heard life is to live for Christ and to die is gain. Life is to bring glory to the name of the Most High God. And if we're not in Christ, judgment will come. And Lord, I pray they will not walk away as some have and say, oh, woe is me. But this afternoon, appease their woe with television, appease their woe with food, appease their woe with whatever pleasure might help pass the time. And then Monday work comes and then Tuesday distractions come and then Wednesday they're back to where they are, not feeling the horror of their sin. Lord, produce godly sorrow that only you can do for the glory of your name, for the redemption of your people, Lord God. Continue to do a mighty work in this church for the glory of your name. Lord, may we see that we cannot keep your commandments, but Jesus Christ kept them perfectly for us. And that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have a desire to live holy lives that bring honor to your name. And yet when we fail, we can repent and experience forgiveness because of Jesus. Thank you for your word, O Holy Father. Do a great work in our midst for your glory. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.